Hello, I'm Jack DeRose, CEO and founder of Colony. And I'm Aaron Fisher, recovering mathematician and co-author of the Colony White Paper. And this is Collectively Intelligent, the podcast in which we hope that if we talk to smart people for long enough, we might eventually say something intelligent. Hello, and welcome to episode zero of our podcast. Our format will be a series of open-ended conversations with people who do interesting things and hopefully have something interesting to say. Specifically, we don't want to spend a lot of time talking about colony, but we feel we have to, at least once. So to get it out of the way, today I will be talking to Jack about colony, the origins, the current status of the project and what to expect in future. Also uniquely today, we don't have a guest. It will just be me and Jack. Hope you enjoy. All right, set that the context. We're talking about colony and, and Ethereum. And um, I wanted to start this by saying that I'd gotten into Ethereum early on. I was very interested in the concept. And I ended up going to the first global Ethereum conference, DevCon 1, in London. And... You know, I wanted to be cool and pay for my ticket using Ether. <laughs> so at the time, it was not so easy. I had to get some Bitcoin first and convert them into Ether. It was like 370-odd Ether it cost me to attend this conference. Had I not spent them on the ticket but kept them, uh, I checked it would now be a little over $1.5 million. And for $1.5 million, I got to hear you speak. <laughs> oh, that's a wonder. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, what you talked about back then is a very, very different colony than what I know today. Mm. What is it you talked about? Can you tell me what that was? That was my very first earliest ramblings on, uh, on what colony was to become. I think that was when I was most literally inspired by uh, ant communication, uh, hence the name colony. Yes, there was like nectar or something yeah, as a there currency was like or a two accounting. different tokens or something within it. There was like pollen and nectar, maybe. Yeah, and and that was very different from from colony of now in that literally everything was being voted on, but even even the voting uh, structure was designed to be uh, extremely lightweight and fun. So it was almost like almost like the voting that you would be doing on something like Tinder, in which you're just making binary decisions about whether or not you think things should happen. And it, it kind of worked in a way, but it was also incredibly rigid. Not really fit for most purposes. So we're talking about uh, a software for coordinating effort with many people and collective right, decision-making, yeah. right? That's where you mentioned yeah, voting. Yeah, it was kind as... of premised on a, on a web of trust kind of model in which you were able to invite people and and now it's coming back to me yeah that there was you would make a decision and if you thought there was it was a good idea then it would sort of propagate onto more people and there was there was this notion of decisions being able to be made quickly by virtue of the fact that the signal would would die off the signal would decay like ant pheromones relatively more quickly uh, if if it was um, not well supported, and it would it would strengthen if it was well supported, 
as, as the decision or propagated through this web of trust kind of model. And the okay, so that's why also colony the name clearly from ant colonies. Exactly correct. And yeah. Why ant colonies? Well, ant colonies are a really good example of what I came to understand as being the sort of dominant dominant organizational paradigm of nature, which is complex adaptive systems. So human organizations are really the only things that observe this sort of structured, uh, rigid, hierarchical uh, approach. Really all other forms of organization that occurs in nature is, is emergent. It's a property of a set of simple rules that exist between agents in a system. And those simple rules being followed lead to complex emergent behavior, which in the case of something like ants, enables the, to, them to do very sophisticated problem solving. The kinds of problems that actually even to computer science were only really solved in the last few decades, things like the traveling salesman problem, which was actually solved in the end, as I recall, by mimicking the way ants solve it, by trying to find a foraging route, laying down pheromones, and that enables uh, using this pheromone mechanism to, to find the optimal foraging route between a, a set of different uh, places to find food, or in the case of the traveling salesman problem, or one way to optimize it that you yeah. want to. So the idea, of course, the ant colony has far more intelligence than any individual ant. Right. I mean, the ant individually has has no intelligence. It's just following a simple set of rules. But yeah, there is an emergent quality of the colony altogether that is intelligent, according to some some definition of intelligent. Other things that ants can do very effectively is to find the ideal position of their mid and their, their like rubbish dump between entrances and, and uh, where foraging takes place, or to effectively thermoregulate their nests. It's, it's quite amazing, actually, what they're capable of doing, given that individually they have no cognition. But then that's quite similar to the fact that no, no neuron in the brain has intelligence. It's, it's when combined that it, it causes this emergent phenomena of, of consciousness and intelligence. But do the, the ants also want, have to want to work together? And do the neurons want to work together? Good point. But I was coming when I was leading up to uh, the question of making jewelry. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> so why would I be asking you about jewelry? I have no idea. You tell me. No, I'm talking about what came before colony when you oh, had okay. the idea. You were making see. jewelry, mm -hmm. really, really expensive jewelry for That's really right. rich, rich people. That's right. And the way I remember you telling it, you were dealing with suppliers and middlemen and manufacturers throughout the globe and trying to coordinate some kind of ad hoc little supply chain and contractors. That's right. And those would all be your ants, but they were all working in their own. I mean, they, they, they weren't coordinating. So it was your work to try to coordinate the work of all these suppliers and contractors. That's exactly correct. Yes. And that was a pain. It was a pain. The idea of colony was to automate that. In a way, yeah, right? I, so I wondered if it would be so, so what happened was that I was 
you know, doing one of the various highfalutin activities that I had to get involved with in, in that line of work, which in this case was attending a gala dinner for some kind of art charity or something in Moscow. And the person that I, I was with there was the daughter of an oligarch. And she'd asked me if I could help her set up a company that I could see would have very similar qualities to my own. And that caused in me a sort of panic reaction, like a, a really visceral negative reaction of wanting to abort and escape. And uh, I felt that was curious, given that I was being effectively offered a blank check to do more or less what I was already doing. And it it inspired me to go back to my hotel room and figure out why it was that I'd had such a negative reaction to it. And I, I realized that it was, a, it was a number of things, which culminated to I really didn't like what I did. I, I didn't, I didn't want to be making jewelry. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't really, I mean, I enjoyed the problem solving side of it. That was, it was interesting and, and making very extraordinary things was, was fun. But all of this socializing, all of this coordinating the supply chain, I really, really did not enjoy at all. And I, I realized that in the back of my mind, I wanted out. And so what I was actually trying to design was a way that I could not turn down the blank check, but I could find myself an exit because I could see this locking me in forever. <laughs> so I wondered if it would be possible to take a supply chain like my own and cause it to self-organize by aligning all of the incentives of everybody in the supply chain. Because I realized that in many cases, the thing that made it so arduous was basically dealing with people who had got misaligned incentives. People looking to profit maximize in the short term at the potential cost of, of, of decreasing overall revenue in the long term but basically making things too expensive uh, or and ultimately harder to sell and so on. Yeah, okay. and so yeah, that was, that was the initial yeah. brain worm that kind of got me thinking about it all. And I, I eventually realized that this was something that was very, very hard problem and that I wasn't going to be able to solve for my own jewelry company. It just wasn't worth all the effort, basically. But it was also too interesting to to give up on. And uh, so I carried on with it. And here we are today. Right. Yes. No, the, the theme of incentive alignment certainly crops up all all over the place in yeah. the DAO and Ethereum space and um, also collective intelligence, which we're going to talk about more, I'm sure, today. Um, okay. So that's sort of the as far as I'm concerned, that's the prehistory. That all happened before I got, got there. And then that's right. I met you shortly after DevCon 1. Was and it really we set about... Oh, of course it was. It was early 2016, wasn't it? Yeah. By Victor Tron. Correct. Madman of Swarm. Yeah, 15 was DevCon 1. And then January or February 2016 was when I met oh. you. And then we set about essentially starting again from scratch. You had learned some lessons from this early version of Colony, which was not based on Ethereum at all. And I mean, it certainly, it sort of was, it just wasn't, it was a, we were building a prototype, like a proof of concept 
using centralized tech, but with the view that a lot of it was going to need to be to be redeveloped. Right. Okay. So at the, so we talked about what do we start with? So one of the this is early days in Ethereum and. People had a really hard time explaining what Ethereum was about, what it was, and even what a smart contract is. You know, blockchains were still very new, and now suddenly you have to talk about EV, the EVM and virtual machine and what is a smart contract. And I remember at the time, a lot of people gave like a really simple example of like a multi-signature wallet, yeah. or it's some kind of a contract. It holds funds, it holds funds, and um, then each person can spend so many per day. And if you need more than this, then you need a two thirds majority. And if you need more than that, 80% and all, all these kind of rules, not because, because those are easy to explain. And whoever you're talking to can sort of understand the concept, understand what you're, what you're talking about. But these are not necessarily good app dApps to, right? These are not necessarily a good program to run on Ethereum. These highly bureaucratic, there's some money stuck in the software and it requires lots of voting, lots of interaction by groups of people before the money moves. But that was sort of the prototype people talked about because it was easy to code, easy to understand. Um, and in this, you know, we were all still exploring this new space and what was possible in it. I bring that up because I remember when we talked a lot about we didn't want to have a lot of voting because this highly, while voting is easy to, it was fun to talk about and fun to talk about majority requirements and quorum requirements. The code is easy, and but um, it's really hard from a human standpoint to interact with such a system. It's very rigid and complex. And the other thing that we had a problem or that the entire space had a problem with is we, when we say something like it requires a two-thirds majority or 50%, 51% majority, that um, Ethereum does not have a concept of a person. And any, you know, when we talk about clubs and cooperatives and all kinds of human organizations, very often we say, you know, we could say something like a per one person, one vote. Um, that's a, a concept of fairness. Maybe depending on context, that might be the fair way, but not always. But we can't do that. Um, in Ethereum, there's no such thing as a person. There's only user accounts. And since anyone can generate thousands of them, we cannot count them as votes. Where was I going with this? Yes, right. Token-weighted voting. See, it was around everywhere. Again, it was the easiest thing to do, right? Yeah, so, so token-weighted voting came about creating a problem, really, to solve a problem of, um, of Sybil. But what we replaced the concern of Sybil attacks with was the concern of plutocracy. And that, that really has not changed very much. That's that's still the the dominant voting paradigm. Yes, because you can count tokens better than you can count people because they're not copyable. Therefore, you don't have the Sybil problem of one person generating a thousand accounts because they cannot generate a thousand tokens out of thin air. Just and if you want to split your them. tokens between multiple accounts, exactly. That good for you. For, for whatever reason, it really doesn't matter. That's fine. Yeah, so that was a non-solution. Well, no, it is. It is a solution. It's just, it's just a, a case of Maslow's hammer, I think, in which it's tempting to think if you've the only tool you've got a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, and that's what it's become: is that token-weighted voting 
is just the way decentralized governance is done, not not because it's actually a good way to do it, just because it's gotten a certain degree of a cognitive bias behind it, that that the collective cognitive bias, I would say, that Isn't makes that. that I, I think, think it's so, just yeah. because this is easy to code and everything else is really, really hard to code. I I don't think I don't think that's a good reason for to explain it actually. I think that there's lots of things, lots and lots of smart contracts out there that are very hard to code. And so I don't think we can we can say it's laziness that has result not resulted in, in something better, actually. I think it's it's more just that there is a certain amount of momentum behind an idea and it then becomes just the way things are done and, and people forget to challenge why it's that way. Okay. I wasn't saying laziness because it's still really, really hard to do and everything else is almost impossible to do. <laughs> um, but okay, so I mean, identity and the blockchain is a whole topic we don't want to get into, but some identity would be needed to do anything like one person, one vote. Yeah. Um, and people want to so, be able to do identity without having centralized KYC and all that kind of thing. Yeah, so centralized got, Oracle give, telling you which account is a person, which one isn't. Right. Yeah. Which is a hard problem. Indeed. Like that's where like it used to be said on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. And you said on the blockchain, nobody knows you're a fridge. Yeah. Like which if any right. device has a user account has an address that is so that's moving forward we came up with this idea of reputation well we didn't call it reputation at first it's, we kept changing called it influence for a time or just waiting or power so the idea was that it's not how many tokens you own or how many tokens you buy that determines your how much weight you can throw around how much decision making weight you should have in our decentralized organization it's more like how much work you put in, how much effort you put in, or how valuable you are. In that, in the sense that you have to earn your decision-making power. Like mm -hmm. if you work for a colony, the thinking was that should, over time, give you the right to decide some things within that colony. Like it belongs to its members. It's it's not an owned entity that you can buy it's one you can work your way into so the idea we came up with is the following right we have you do work for your colony and then um, well you get paid for the, by the colony for doing your work that's fine and those those are with tokens and those tokens can be um, sold and those are work like any other token but the decision making power is not token weighted but it's weighted by how many tokens you have earned in the past well, at first approximation, that's how we started. Mm -hmm. um, that means each user account has a different weight depending on how much work they've done. Mm -hmm. right? It's not the same thing as one person, one vote, but perhaps that's not even the right concept. Right? In I a, think it very much depends on context. So yeah, no, fairness is context dependent. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. In, in a colony where one person works full time and another person helps out once every three weeks, they should not have the same say. Right, and if that is that organization is something analogous to a company, then that's true. If it's something that's more analogous to a country, then it's less true, or a housing association, then it's less true. So, the, as you say, what constitutes fairness 
is entirely context dependent and what constitutes a reasonable decision-making mechanism is, is entirely context dependent. I can see that for, for that very reason, there'd be lots of occasions where it really wouldn't make sense for it to be premised on how much you've been paid by an organization, but, but some other, some other metric. Yeah, that is true. But I remember we actually spent a lot of time thinking about how much you get paid by the organization, how many mm -hmm. hours you worked and so on. And yep. we hit the same problem that the people who do token weighted voting, the reason that people, one of the reasons people gravitate towards token weighted voting is because token counting is easy mm -hmm. and not forgeable, but uh, counting user accounts is, you know, it, it is gameable. And we had the similar problem. We could count on chain how many tokens a user account had gotten paid, but we couldn't count in a non-gameable way how many hours have been worked because that, that would be gameable. You could lie about it. Mm -hmm. Again, we, we had the same limitations as everyone else. We just ended up using them differently. We used the accounts paid to the, the tokens paid to your account to calculate your reputation. But the other really important thing that really sets uh, reputation apart from tokens is this concept of decay that we um, implemented. Can you just describe that or both what it is and why it's important? Yeah, so when you receive a colony's native token in payment, you receive an equivalent number of reputation points. And it's those reputation points, as Aaron mentioned, that, that are used to weight your influence within that particular team in the organization. So this reputation is always tied to the area of the organization, the team or domain of the organization in which it was earned. And then it decays over, in our case, uh, initially at least three months. So it has a half-life of three months. What that means is that in order to maintain your level of influence, you need to continue to contribute. That solves two major problems of, of token-weighted voting. The first is what we termed the aristocracy of influence, in which if you are there at the very beginning in a token-weighted voting situation, and you have consequently been allocated a large number of tokens, it's quite unlikely over time that it will be easy for latecomers to earn a meaningful say in the organization because it tends to be that the largest token holdings pretty much stay where they started. Yeah, that's in crypto. It's very common. Like the early yeah. team has outsized influence in number of tokens forever or the people who were into Bitcoin early are, you know, multimillionaires and yeah. people who entered later clearly are not. Okay, so it solves that by um, making, well, even if you have a lot of reputation at first, it decays over time and you have to, it will not stay with you. Your tokens might, but the reputation does not. Exactly. And that was the reason for separating out tokens and reputation, because we felt that it is important to be able to financially incentivize people to take the risk of contributing to an organization when it's in its earliest stages and it doesn't have a great deal of promise. But in a traditional organization, the more successful a company becomes 
uh, over time, the more money it has, the higher the caliber of talent it's able to attract. And as it stands in decentralized governance scenarios uh, premised on token-weighted voting, it actually does impede this high-quality talent from being able to gain access and gain influence um, over time simply because it's very, very expensive for them to do so. So the barriers to entry are extremely high. But with Colony's reputation decay, it means that the influence people have normalizes to reflect the contemporaneous contributions. So if you are somebody who's highly skilled and consequently ought to be highly paid and you come to the organization later on, over really the time that it takes you to get onboarded to the organization and understand what's going on, you'll have accrued sufficient influence to be able to make a meaningful contribution to decision making. Yeah. This actually reminds me of something the Alex van der Sand once said at a DEFCON conference, and it was about unstoppable applications. Mm. And at the time, people were mocking that phrase because they say, well, the original, the DAO hack and the subsequent... Yeah, that came back to haunting. <laughs> well, no, but uh, so I want to say like that people misunderstand the both the phrase unstoppable application and what this DAO hack was or the, the hard fork to revert mm -hmm. that state transition. His notion was... So I remember he had this image on screen of like a, a Roman road in use today and some train tracks for, that were abandoned and overgrown. And the idea was that, you know, unless you have rail that fits exactly those tracks, they will never be used and they'll go into disrepair if the company stops making those trains. But anyone can use the road. And as long as they're users, it will continue to be a road. It won't be overgrown. Um, so even Roman roads are still in use today. And with applications, it should be seen, an unstoppable application should be seen in that light. Like it, an, an application that is fully decentralized will be run on Ethereum and maybe Swarm or other technologies um, will keep running as long as you, people are interested in using it. And you know, if it were running, if it were started by a colony, even if the entire original team quit, stop working over time, as long as other people come in and pick up the work, they can continue working and developing the app. And indeed, the decision-making power will move to those new people over time, just as smoothly as the reputation function dictates. And so you never have this, you know, oh, this app was abandoned by the team that made it and therefore you know there's like an old github page that hasn't been updated in 20 years or eight years or whatever how long it is like these apps as long as their users will not stop running yeah and th I, think I think that's, that's actually one of the unfortunately quite misunderstood strengths of dapps uh, and unfortunately i think a, a lot of them aren't really designed with that capability in mind some are for sure yeah, no I, I that that is indeed where i want to go to next but mm. it was like this vision of the unstoppable application that doesn't belong to any one person or any one entity but whose ownership in the sense of governance ownership of, of being able to make decisions and move the organization forward and control it continually evolving over time based on who's working on it and who's getting involved and, and, you know, the, the colony is a very dynamic. So there, there's this constant churn of reputation 
of new people coming in and of people dropping out to allow for this you know unstoppable community run organization so that's a you know that's when we talk about dapps decentralized application that's really the d the decentralized aspect of it so yes we set out to make a true decentralized application with colony you know not dependent on any servers or any hosting company we thought if we disappear overnight it should continue running that's right we faced some problems doing that right initially we did yeah yeah can yeah, you describe was, what exactly we ran into difficult to begin with to do that i mean it was possible if you wanted to if you didn't con- concern yourself too much with user experience so this has been the fairly perpetual challenge of of working with blockchain technology is the uh is the user experience and let, may I, sorry let me just give some yeah, context sure. to the uh, to listeners there's the word dapp decentralized application is used in different ways sometimes it's used in the following way where there's a bunch of smart contracts on the ethereum blockchain that manage some funds or tokens and count votes and there's an application in the web 2 sense with you know a lot of assets images javascript functionality a nice user interface running on one server maintained by one group or company and that really provides the interface for humans to those smart contracts of course the smart contracts are there on ethereum and you can if you want to if you're able to write raw transactions you can interact with them but for all intents and purposes for a human being you have to go through this app running on this server and if that disappears overnight it's very very hard for you to interact with the smart contracts anymore so that in that sense this app is not entirely decentralized because there it has at least from a interface point it has a centralized uh, single point of failure if that company disappears if that server is taken down it is possible for another group to come along and set up a new server with a new dapp that interacts with these same contracts um but that's you know a huge hurdle and what we wanted to do is not just have the back end these smart contracts running on ethereum we wanted to decentralize the dapp itself so that it would not rely on a server and it would run on you know the data would be on the ipfs system and um i think orbit db was decentralized database instead of a database running on a server so that's what we were trying to do and that's where the technology was really hard right and we couldn't get a good user experience using that technology yeah i mean the challenge that we were facing was was trying to provide a user experience that would look feel behave respond like a web2 app um but using no servers whatsoever and that was kind of the promise of orbit db back then but we we just it just didn't work basically it was incredibly difficult to build with and uh, the performance was deeply unreliable so yeah we burnt a lot of we burnt a lot of time with that very worthy pursuit of complete decentralization valiant effort it was a valiant it, effort yeah. yeah but you know such as the challenges of of trying to build things really when things are not ready to be built uh, on the underlying technology uh, but you know we got there in the end uh, with the current stack that we have of uh, of well EVM plus uh, the graph and um IPFS and and now it, it works pretty well yeah we have a, at some point we started writing again and we have a new dap and it is now really exciting like 
I know I've been involved in this, so I'm biased, but I am actually really excited about the DAP we have now. And I, yeah, it's awesome. That's why. It's a good time. A good <laughs> yeah. time for Colney. It's also. Totally. Let's talk a bit about the current app then, or the current status. The new app is not live for everyone. It's not public yet. No, the app currently is in, I suppose, closed beta in that it's, um, we're inviting people to participate in early access, basically because it's not as feature complete as we would like it to be before giving open access to it. There are a few performance limitations, or, or rather, I suppose, UX quirks. It's preferable now to be able to talk people through so they understand how to overcome them. And, and it doesn't have decentralized governance just yet. Uh, although that's that's coming. So it's actually worthwhile noting that everything that we talk about as colony constituting is actually there in the smart contracts. And so once upon a time, like in the days of the DAO, this would have been amazing. This would have been perfectly acceptable because it was deemed quite okay to have to interact with, uh, uh, with smart contracts via MIST or via you know the Ethereum wallet and just construct the, con the um, transactions. Yeah, I, I remember there. everyone's like, well, it's not Aleth, Aleth zero, so therefore it's fine. You know? Right, yeah. Um, but I think that would actually be practically quite difficult <laughs> with, with Colony because it's, it's a lot more sophisticated than, than the DAO was. But yeah, so all of the smart contracts are there. All, all of this stuff is humming away in the background, but it's just that the application gives you only a very narrow window into that, uh, into that power so far. Um, but that's what's what's rolling out. So at the moment, we're working on, uh, we're just in QA with motions and disputes. I imagine by the time we actually publish this podcast, it's, it's likely to be out there in at, at least in um, in closed testing with, uh, yeah. with real we're users. We're recording in May 2021. And right. we've, had, we've had our closed beta running for a few months now, and we're learning yeah, like more by, you know, from the groups that are using it. When do you think it could be I think open we'll be for going, I think we'll be going live with this uh, in two weeks to the beta testers. And then we'll go into open beta when we've got a few other small boxes ticked that will mean that people don't get stuck on things that are, are easy to not get stuck on. Uh, so that'll be, I don't know, maybe another two to four weeks after that. So we'll summer 2021. Yeah, like... It'll be public. Mid to late June, hopefully. Okay. Yeah, that sounds... We'll be getting public beta. And that'll be fun. That'll be very fun. Yeah, that's. I'm waiting for that. Very excited about that. Okay, so does that... Then I guess we should also mention the token, the CLNY token in that context, right? Yeah. That's, the token has been something that we've avoided for very many years. But it's no longer avoidable as we, as we want to get the network governing itself. Yeah, so exactly. The tokens. So there was this whole wave of selling tokens in these so-called initial coin offerings that people termed them back in, <laughs> I think, 2017. It was just all the rage. Have a product that doesn't it's need still, It's still all the rage. It's back yeah, in fashion. Okay, it's, it, yeah, well, right now everything's... It's the flares manic. of crypto. <laughs> yeah, it's... The, it's it there's it's like a manic depressive kind of there's two years of depression then a year of absolute mania and then goes back into depression and just 
Okay. Yeah. But anyway, two years ago, or three, when, four years ago, 2017, the first mania of ICOs. Project comes up with an app, bolts on a token that it says is going to be used for voting. No, no, they didn't say so, then that it was going to be used for voting. They just said, here's a token. There was no rationale in most cases for the token. It was just token. We've got a DAP of some description. We've got some smart contracts. We have an idea of for a DAP of some description. We've, that's actually more true, yeah. We've got an idea for a DAP. We've got a, a hastily written white paper. And uh, we've got a token. We don't actually know what the token's for. We actually haven't really thought about what the token's for, but we have got a token. So we're going to sell it and we're going to raise 100 million and everything will be great. And they did raise way too much money. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was crazy. It's like, um, I mean, I guess now you could just say, here's an NFT for our app and sell that. But <laughs> in the current yeah, case... NFTs are exactly the same as, as ICOs were into. I mean, it has the same kind of hype side that misses yeah. the point completely and attracts all the attention. Yeah, a, a I mean, I'm. I we shouldn't. I know because like we shouldn't give into that because NFTs per se, the technology has a lot of cool uses. But yes. what's happening out there right now and what makes it into popular press is depressingly not that. It's a similarly uh, insubstantial. It's like a cargo cult. It, it a bit, yeah. It's just because the fundamentals aren't there, and that and that was the same problem with ICOs. Like huge promise in in tokenized crypto systems huge promise in the, the concept of an ICO, but these things are being conducted without the necessary rigor and without the fundamentals being in place that actually does make it make sense. And I think that's exactly where, where NFTs are right now. Great in principle, in practice, not so great yet, but it will get there. No, so and I think that's where what's happened now with tokenized crypto systems and possibly to a lesser extent token sales, because there's still a lot of, a lot of fluff there, but at least people have by and large understood and, and token purchasers have by and large understood that it's necessary to have a connection between the token and the protocol. It's necessary for a token to have some mechanism of value capture. It's necessary for it not to be trivially identifiable as a security in most countries. There's like a checklist of stuff that you need to have right to effectively and appropriately issue a token and now i think by and large would were there on that particular point and i know we thought about running uh, selling a token because um well our network requires a token the colony network as a whole because we said every colony requires its own token to do the whole reputation system and uh, we wanted colony the dap to also be under con the control of a colony which is now called the meta colony i think we might have called it the root colony at the time but some colony which runs the whole colony network and that token we thought about selling we didn't we, mm -hmm. we, i mean all kinds of reasons as you said there's legal and also ethical and we wanted to have yeah. a product ready and launched before we sell but we can no longer put it off we have a dap we want to launch we want to launch the meta colony that's running the colony network and At that point, when the decentralized governance of the colony system itself takes off, we need to have this token out there. Right. Exactly. So that's also so something you've been working on a lot. And it's also, you know, with, with the lawyers and the, <laughs> as well as the devs. Um, yeah. 
all kinds of contracts going through my mind. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's what was more what's more work on the token sale, the dev or the lawyers, the contracts uh, or the smart contracts? It's about That's the how same. I should ask it. Yeah, about the same. Yeah, it's about the same. It's both fairly inscrutable and arcane, but we muddle through. <laughs> no. no, I. I, I Wait. Okay. So that's what I was going to ask. Does that token sale come at the same time as the DAP launch in public? Actually, probably no. I think that the the DAP is likely to be out there working well as it currently is before the token sale happens. And the 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 major thing that the token sale enables for for the colony network is that right now all the reputation mining is centralized. We do it all, um, which is you know fine. One one company can do it. The problem would be that if we were to all get hit by a bus, then it would stop. In fact, actually, it's worse than that. If only one or two members of our team got hit by a bus, then reputation mining would would uh, find an impediment in its path. So it's, it's the bus factor. Whereas once we have issued tokens and anybody can set up a reputation miner, then that is kind of the last aspect of the uh, back end of the application that will become decentralized because people can start staking and, and doing those proof of stake calculations. Right. So that's the two things this token does. One is, of course, the decentralized governance of the meta colony. The other one is calculating everyone's reputation in every colony for which we had to invent this mining process to do the calculation off chain yeah. because it's not which, possible which, to do it. Which I actually chain. realized recently is basically an optimistic rollup. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's almost the same. Yeah, it's, it's like a Truebit, a baby version of Truebit, which also, you know, offline cal- cal- uh, computation with an on, on cha- off-chain computation yeah. with an on-chain challenge response protocol to weed out uh, false yeah. submissions. The difference is that it's just, um, well, it's just for one specific purpose rather than for generally running something which is more or less the EVM. Yeah, and, this, and this is automated. Yeah, I mean, it's. I remember also over the last few years, in the early years, we were all having the exact same conversations. And I was involved uh, with you guys at Colony, and I was talking to the Swarm team, and at one point with the Casper team, researching, you know, the centralized consensus. And I was having the same conversations with everyone, every different context, because this whole tech was so new. We were all discovering the same limitations and, the, you know, finding the same workarounds and solutions. And, so it's been it's been exciting seeing the space mature. Let me then the, I wanted to have one more question um, that is tangential, which is about uh, you're the CEO of Colony, the comp- or collectively intelligent, the company That's building right, Colony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are some. I mean, there's challenges running any startup, and there might be some unique challenges when working in this space with so few people who have you know, experience in it because it's so new and a lot of money pulling people away, like dumb money, but lots of it. So I was wondering if you could tell me just a little bit about what the challenges are of actually being a CEO in this space, because I know my brain does not do that at all. I, I, I don't know. I don't can't imagine how, if, what, how much of a failure I would be if I tried to run a company. You know, I don't even know how to hire people, let alone fire them, which was probably much harder, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, what is it like doing that? I mean, it's it's fun. It's a, it's a different challenge every day, and I love it absolutely. And you know, the thing that's actually most enjoyable, is, I think, about this space in particular, is because actually, by and large, the people who are involved with it are you know, the, there's obviously this huge financial component, but that isn't what had attracted all the characters to something like DevCon 1, where it was really nothing about the money, and it was all about the technology and the potential. And it was it was pretty utopian and, and naive in many ways. But that, I think that utopianism and, and, and generally that it seems to attract good people is still at the core of it all, and it's still... Well, yeah, that that is I, that's true. I it's one that. I like about the, the the scene. Like on the, if you look on the forums on the internet, it seems like it's all about money. But if you go to the yeah. conferences, especially during bear markets when the conferences tended to be better, you see, like you know, it, it, it had. I mean, there's people there from hedge funds, but also from the pirate party, you know, from from, from banking and financial regulators to the liquid democracy folks. It was a very interesting mix of people, and they were all there mm. because clearly there's something new here, and everyone's has this gut feeling that this is going to be huge, disruptive across society in many ways, without knowing precisely what it's going to do. And the financial applications were the first to be built because I think they're the most, they fit really easily into this framework, the programmable tokens. But the potential for more greater disruption for you know social coordination is ultimately much bigger, which is why I think quality is such an interesting project. We're talking about solving problems together and coordinating around solving problems. The fact that there's a financial side is really helpful, but it's not necessarily what it's about. Yeah, I mean, as I recall, I mean, it might be misremembering, but I seem to recall that Vitalik called out that um, decentralized finance was, was likely to be a major initial use case of Ethereum. And I think that makes absolute sense because it's like as products, they're relatively straightforward. As you know, smart contract systems that they're, they're they're relatively straightforward in that you've got a set of of rules, and as long as you can get the system into effective equilibrium, then um, it's it's going to work because that's that's the nature of smart contracts, and you can pump money through those systems and and they continue to work and then i think so so it makes sense to me that that would have gained a lot of traction to begin with because further that is the use case like there's a market just ready for it of people who have no money sorry who people have people who do have money in that they have ether um and other tokens and they don't have any financial products and so it would make sense to be able to sell the financial products to the people with no money with money but no financial products and then i think nfts have come along as kind of the next big thing that's gained gained traction and what's interesting to me is that you know DeFi brought in a lot of people from the financial world into crypto and then nfts have brought in a lot of artists into crypto or gamers too and gamers game but to a lesser extent gamers when when i set up um 
ownage with uh, with Alex Amsov and Adam Powell from formerly who founded this is the Neopets. other company you had. Yeah, yeah. That was that was all about NFTs. That was in 2016. We set that up. So we didn't have the words NFTs at that point, but we did re- frequently call them non fungibles. But our view then was that gaming was such an awesome use case for non fungible tokens. And I, I still think that is where the, the big thing is, but there's just such a lot of infrastructure. There's a long way to go before that really becomes a mainstream big deal. Uh, whereas I think art is, it doesn't really require the same infrastructure. Anybody can just issue an NFT as, as a piece of art. And so consequently, I, I think that's, you know, there's a low barrier to entry and it's pretty easy to understand. I think that the challenges of, of more sophisticated things is that they are more complicated and hard, harder to understand. So DAOs, like things like Colony, are, are much more involved, much bigger. So I think that it comes a little bit later, but I think that it's ultimately such a much bigger market because where DeFi brought in a lot of financial people in and NFTs have brought in a lot of artists, I think that work and organizations really starting to make sense and work effectively on chain is going to bring the freelancers of the world, the people who work for a living of the world into blockchain technology. And um, I think that the the promise there is almost unlimited. Yeah, the idea that anyone from anywhere in the world can contribute digitally to a colony, do the work from wherever, get paid without, you know, it's it certainly lowers a lot of the friction of international payments and commerce tremendously and of opportunity as well i mean i think this well, that's is the flip the side right yes we, yeah we talked about so much at the beginning was you know what a world of difference it makes to go from the sort of status quo of there being a handful of cities in the world in which there is huge amounts of opportunity, huge amounts of wealth. And if you're fortunate enough to be there, then it's it's easier for you compared to somebody who is equivalently talented but lives somewhere in the developing world or, or you know, even just, you know, somewhere in, in Europe that's not as easily connected. Just the, the opportunity differences are, are, are just enormous. And so if we move to a world in which people can't really tell you're a pseudonym and the thing that you're judged on is the quality of your character and the quality of your work rather than where you are physically located i think that breaks down a lot of a lot of barriers and creates a world in which we can have much greater equality of opportunity which i I really feel is what we ought to be striving towards right but it does i mean a lot of this is knowledge work so it really requires education it does. But there are talented people everywhere, right? Uh, you know, merit is, is, is sort of, uh, meritocracy is famously not fair because those who have the luxury of an expensive education and good connections uh, are at, at an enormous advantage over those who don't. But it's still a better situation than having to have all of those advantages and be physically located in somewhere advantageous. 
Oh, when we'll see where this technology goes. I mean, no, I mean it might be that colonies coordinate uh, projects that require a lot of manual labor somewhere. It, could it, be. it just require it, it. It requires some way to have bookkeeping within the colony system and to keep track of who's doing what. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessary. I mean, it at first use case, it'll be a lot of software development and, and yeah. I imagine and digital design and all the stuff that you know these people are native to the internet and work gets submitted digitally. Yeah. Yeah, but, but, there's, but there's no reason in principle why data that's generated physically in the in the real world isn't able to find its way onto chain and, and the things can't be being coordinated in the real world. We we did think about that quite a bit when designing colony, but it, it does feel like a more natural fit for things like software development. At least initially. At least because initially. it is still very hard to use. I mean there's a lot of steps. Yeah. You need to tell I mean, people I think about. It's it's not very hard to use anymore. I think well, it's yeah, but, comparatively you know, I, straightforward. It, it, I mean, if you have the right social technical co- context, but I mean, not just you have to. You know, the people need to have know the internet, know browsers, and then wallets and passphrases, and like all these concepts you have to learn. True. At this point, um, yeah. The, the, I, su- I suppose I mean versus other apps. Like oh, if yes, you're yes. if you're capable of using a web two app, it's a bit more involved, but not a huge amount more involved. It's just it's more it's it's more that it's different, slightly different than actually harder. Yeah, I mean, different means you're not used to it. Means you have to learn something new. And yeah. that, you know. But once you have learned it, and it's, it's not a very high learning curve. It, and it, it's gotten us so much easier since we started this. Yeah. in Twenty sixteen. All right. So then, one more question. Over the years, we used to have. I remember we did all these, you know, when we did a interviews or podcasts, or, and people would invariably start by asking us a question that we thought, this is really, really hard, and we don't want to be asked it because it's so hard to answer, and yet they're always open with it. And that question was, so what is Colony? Like, uh, oh, yeah. God, where do we start? So they start yeah. with blockchains and DAOs and, you know. You know I've because- actually forgotten about the fact that before explaining Colony, in those years, we had to give a primer on on what a blockchain is. <laughs> yeah, and decentralization, general blockchain, smart contract, like the whole concept context was missing. Yeah. But um, so now it's 2021, people know about blockchains and smart contracts um, and maybe even have some idea of the general concept of a DAO, a decentralized mm-hmm. autonomous organization. So today in May 2021, Jack, what is Colony? Oh, not that question. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, my explanation of, of what Colony is now is exactly the same as it was in 2016. I used literally the same words. Colony makes it easy for people all over the world to build organizations together online. That's it. But people were blank when I said that to them in 2016. I said, what on earth are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. But now, I don't have to do all of that explanation. And it's, I think the reason why it's so hard to explain what Colony is, and I say this after having spent many years throwing myself against the wall of, of, of trying to get comprehension from people, it's kind of clarified by putting yourself into the position 
of imagining if you were to go to some you know rainforest tribe in the amazon who's never heard of a company and you've got to go and explain to them the intricate workings of google you would be faced with an insurmountable task because there is just no frame of reference for what a company is doing, let alone the kinds of work that it might be doing or why they're doing this work and what that means legally, what the legal system is, how disputes are resolved, how people get paid or on what basis they get paid, how authority emerges within this organization, how structure arises. There's so many facets of it that are just inscrutable if you don't have some intrinsic sort of cultural context that enables you to to just get your hands around the idea and and i think that that is the challenge that we've kind of overcome now because people have had this awful acronym of DAO thrown around sufficiently that they kind of feel embarrassed not to have a, a vague sense of what it is. Although the the you know it's usually incorrect because there is still no no real consensus on, on on what a DAO is. And I think it's become unfortunately synonymous with voting on things, which is um, precisely not what we at least think a DAO ought to be all about um but but at least i i no longer have to have to try and explain everything from first principles which uh, inevitably ends up into a level of complexity that would make even the sort of make, make anybody glaze over yeah i remember that but okay so um is there anything else you still want to add about where we're at now and what's coming up next. Well, I, th I don't think we've actually explained what Colony really does and what makes Colony different. From what? Different from? Well, from, from other DAO frameworks that people may be familiar with, like the DAO or Moloch or really any of these other things. No, I'm not even familiar with some of them. <laughs> well, I think as, as I'd mentioned earlier, that... DAOs have become synonymous with voting. It's a way that you've got some funds and you can allow people to vote on how those funds should be allocated. People can make, basically make a proposal um, to access those funds and people then have to vote on it. And it's done so, it's done using tokens. Right. This is the programmable money aspect of Ethereum. Or... Well, I mean, yeah, sure. There's, there's lots of ways in which it makes money programmable but no but i mean this goes back to the very very first examples i was mentioning like, yeah ethereum first starts people say well what can you do with it well you can put uh money in a smart contract and then you can impose these rules in software you know which mostly was votes and people sending signed messages and then the end result is funds move and their DAOs were using this early DAOs were using this concept or this model exclusively I, I mean they still are using this model but the, the the problems run deeper than that so we we talked about um, reputation earlier on and and how that works 
or that it's got this quality of decay and it's earned by getting paid by the organization and its native token. But the other major problem of DAO frameworks as they currently exist is that they are not scalable at all. And that lack of scalability is an inherent quality of the way decisions are made, that it requires everybody to be able to vote on things. So if you can only, if you've only got a single sort of homogenous set of, of attributes that are being used to make decisions, then necessarily all decisions have to be made by everybody. And, and that's not going to allow an organization to scale or be agile. It's not going to allow an organization to have any of the qualities that we look for and require in, in any organization, even small startups have the quality of needing to divide concerns and have different areas of responsibility and different areas of expertise. And so one of the very first decisions that were made about Colony and, and why we have reputation in the way that we have them is this need to divide concerns. So our, our goal really was to recapitulate the firm, the, the, the company, to have all of the qualities that we look for in a company and its ability to scale and make decisions in an agile manner, um, but to do so in an environment of low trust or, or no trust, ideally, and of pseudonymity. Pseudonymity. There we go. Got the word out. Mm. So that's really is what informed the entirety of, of Colony's design. And so we started off with, with this realization that an organization would need to be compartmentalized, as is, I think, fairly obvious if you've ever worked in a company, you need to have different teams. And then the authority within those teams needed to be able to be conferred somehow. And in a traditional company, that's conferred effectively from the top down. If I'm the CEO, I hire a C-suite. And the C-suite is then able to hire managers and the managers have underlings and so on. And the power flows from the, the top down. But I think we realize that that kind of structure is fundamentally opposed with it being decentralized. It can't be both decentralized and formally hierarchical in those terms. So we needed to find a way for this hierarchy to be an emergent property of people's behavior, which is where we got to reputation from. And I think you can think of reputation as an analog of, of um, something that most people are familiar with, uh, as, as credit scoring. So in the case of your credit score, any agency or any company that would care about what your credit score is, they really don't care what your name is or you know any other personal attribute of you. They only care about the track record of behavior uh, that you've demonstrated over time. And that behavioral track record is what's used to allow you to have one degree or another of credit. So we saw the principle in Colony as being very similar in that you earn, uh, you earn your influence, you earn how much credit effectively you're going to be able to be given within this organization. Decision-making credit. 
indeed, uh, on the basis of your behavior. But much like with a credit score, if you start to not pay your bills, you're going, your credit score is going to decrease and you're going to be able to get less credit. Same in an economy. If you have behaved well and you've contributed well and you've earned a certain amount of reputation and then you start to misbehave or your work quality degrades, then you're going to cease to earn the same reputation. In fact, you might even earn yeah, reputational we, penalties. A... Yeah, we didn't touch on that, but yes, of course, you can also lose reputation yeah. uh, for misbehavior. And so your your ability to exercise your, your influence decreases accordingly. And so I think it's these two qualities of, of colony that really set it apart. And I don't think you can have teams without reputation. If you're not able to understand why people should have influence of a kind then you really can't segment the organization in a decentralized way. You could segment it by knowing who the people are and having those individuals have authority conferred onto them, which is much more analogous to a traditional company. But if you do want to have a truly decentralized organization, I can't see how you could do it and scale at scale without having reputation which is contextualized. And then the other thing I think about Colony, which is one of the unique benefits of it, is that it deals with the problem of, of voter apathy in, in a way that I think is, is very elegant. And in tokenized crypto systems with, with token-based voting, voter apathy is, is an obvious and, and huge problem in that the... the um, Reaching quorum can be very difficult, and, and typically the numbers required for quorum are very low. Yeah, and the, 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 the model, the idea was always, well, people are obviously financially incentivized to take yeah. these decisions, therefore they will. And that was spectacularly false. Because yeah, it's we've spectacularly seen... false. Yeah. And it's, it's false, and it's irrelevant in a number of ways, actually. So it's, it's irrelevant or it's inappropriate, I think is probably a better term, because whoever said that your wealth is a proxy for your expertise, you know, just because you have got a huge amount of um, tokens, it doesn't mean that you know anything about whether a particular upgrade is an appropriate choice or not. And in no other sphere in the world would we expect that to be the case you wouldn't expect you know elon musk to be equivalently good at heart surgery just because he's the wealthiest man in the world so why we've decided that that is a reasonable basis for decision making is is pretty much beyond me well you know it's a fundamental idea of capitalism that i don't think the it more, is the fundamental no the, the idea, idea that if you have more like the, the idea that since this decision making, this decision is going to influence you more because you have more tokens on the line, you are going to put in more effort and you know, have the, which is also a, 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 a hilarious, yeah, an hilarious fallacy. That I mean, that yes, the, the stock market is based on this idea, though, right? Money, right? No, the stock market isn't based on that. It's the, the no, it's not because people are not. Those people, it's their I mean, job shareholder to trade. decisions, shareholder capitalism, right? 
the biggest shareholders have the biggest say? Board-based shareholder meetings, perhaps, but those are very infrequent. And they are a very specific, small group of decisions. They are not used for the operational decision-making of any company in the world. Correct. So is that how we should think of token-based voting interacting with colonies? Token-based might be a model for the shareholders annual meeting but not for the day-to-day operations exactly it's really what i was saying before token-based voting is a hammer and and just because we have that hammer it doesn't mean we we should use it for screws these are different things which require different tools and then outside of token holdings or, or, or wealth is no proxy for expertise or even in many cases rationality there's also the fact that it's it's a fallacy of people who don't really understand money to think that the people who have the high the largest positions of a token are going to be the ones who are most incentivized to to uh, participate in governance it's they're not because what you don't know is the proportion of their portfolio that those tokens constitute if you are somebody who you know has not had very much money and you have got a hundred thousand dollars worth of a token you know to most people that is a it's a fortune it's a huge amount of money that you're going to very definitely want to actively participate in to ensure is going to be kept safe and is going to grow with the success of the protocol that you're trying to govern but if you are Elon Musk and you've got a hundred thousand dollars worth of something, then the proportion of your wealth that that constitutes is so vanishingly minute that the opportunity cost of paying any attention to it whatsoever is just too great, and you, you're absolutely not going to participate in its governance, even if you happen to be the largest token holder. And that happens at all sorts of scales. I mean, I think that that's just a huge nail in the coffin of, of token-weighted governance as, uh, as useful in, in many cases. And then you have more, I suppose, crafty reasons why it's problematic, such as the flash loans that we've occasionally seen, or people accruing large amounts of, of tokens uh, in order to take a short position and influence governance to some means that is actually outside of outside of the actual protocol right so that's true so you can buy in buy influence if you have a token weighted yeah. vote and you don't know that that person who's got the tokens actually has that organization's best interest at heart because they might have a short position outside you know, out of band where they profit from this company collapsing there's all kinds of things yeah and the flash loans we suddenly borrow a lot of tokens to do something and then give them back very much. Yeah, I agree with you. That can cause all kinds of skewed incentives. So then... I think what... I've got onto a, uh, onto a bit of a general, general anti-token voting rant, which, which is not really how I feel about the matter, because I do actually think that token, token uh, voting has got a place. It's just that it's, it's a narrower place. It's, there are occasions where if you think that the thing that really matters here is what the token holders think for good reasons, for logical reasons, then then that's the time to use the tool. 
but in other occasions, of course, it's not. But um, yes, I, I, what I was originally <laughs> ranting about was um, was quorum and why reputation, our reputation-weighted motions and disputes are an elegant solution to this problem of of um, difficulty of getting quorum, and that is because the because it's weighted by reputation, which is earned by contributing to a particular area of an organization, it's necessarily biased towards those who are most engaged with it by virtue of having, and they have the most reputation by virtue of them being most engaged with it. So they really are the ones who have got the strongest interest in participating in those decisions and will mean that it gets to quorum easily if voting is necessary. And so the whole way the colony has been designed is is to enable a vote to take place very quickly if and only if voting is necessary. But we actually try and make it so that voting isn't necessary most of the time. Our thesis has been that in a, in a well-functioning organization, uh, voting is really necessary. Voting is almost an act of violence. It's the creation of, mm. of disagreement and dissent and argument in an organization. And that's something that you kind of want to avoid. You, you don't want that disharmony, generally. You want to build alignment, and not constant disalignment, or, or reinforcing or demonstrating it. And, and in reality, that's what we see most of the time in real DAOs that are, are out there is that the consensus really forms off-chain. Consensus formation in in the context of DAOs has got very little to do with a blockchain. When voting takes place on-chain, it's really just a process of ratifying decisions that were already made off-chain. Yes, voting is not a decision-making procedure. It's a procedure for recording a decision that kind of has already been made. Right, exactly. It's almost like the minutes of a board meeting but ones that require you to, to, you know, herd the cats to get the vote to actually pass quorum again after it's already in practice being decided on. So it, it's, a, it's a huge waste of cognitive bandwidth as well as bandwidth on the blockchain. So the way Colony solves that problem is through what we call lazy consensus. And it means that if you have created a proposal, what we call a motion, it probably means that you have already discussed this. It probably means that you've already got a good sense that this is something that your organization would like. If not, then you probably haven't been working effectively in your organization or communicating effectively. So we assume that most things have been discussed so if you can just create a proposal, as I say, a motion in colony, it should pass as long as nobody objects to it. And that's exactly how it works. So Yeah, this is the model that people are actually talking to each other. Yeah, this is assuming that people are actually talking to one another. And it, the organization is operating, as I mentioned, which is that consensus formation takes place off-chain yeah. in conversation. Yeah, I meant that as a real point because yeah. people love to analyze smart contracts in isolation as if the people using a smart contract do not know anything about anyone else except the transactions they send on ethereum yeah. and that tends to be false because we have forums we have video chats we have calls you know 
So that's where the conversation should take place. That's where decisions are reached. And then you don't need to vote on them on chain. Just somebody implements them. Here's a motion. This is what we talked about. Let's do it. Yeah. And it's only when that is not true that votes are triggered. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So perhaps circumstances have changed and the motion no longer makes sense. Or perhaps a motion was was created spuriously or maliciously, in which case, again, it would make sense for somebody to to object to it. And, and in Colony, there's always a system of incentives, both to create an emotion, if you think one ought to be created, and also to find things that you think are inappropriate, because basically, if you have found something that is inappropriate, and you stake against it, and you are correct, then you stand to win the stake, or part of the stake, of the, um, of the person who created the proposal in the first place. Yeah, this is part of our incentives throughout Colony to make sure that the emergent behavior is that what we want by incentivizing all the correct behaviors. So that overall, at least that's the idea. We'll, we'll see how well it works yeah, very soon. Will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's great. When you mentioned this thing about flash loans uh, and mm. somebody being able to hold a lot of tokens, even though they don't have any interest in them accruing value, uh, that reminded me that one other thing that's really great about reputation that it allows us to do. It allows us to tie someone's long-term incentives or medium-term incentives to those of the colony. Right? So you have earned reputation, it's stuck to your account. It has a half-life, but at least for the immediate future, you will have this reputation for quite a while. And um, colonies have a method of paying out rewards to people who hold tokens and reputation, meaning that there is a you know, if even if you've, if you've stopped contributing to a colony, maybe, and you want to look elsewhere in, in future for your work and effort, you are still you're, you're not gonna you're still incentivized. At, what we're trying to say, you're not you don't have an you don't, you don't have an incentive to hurt the colony in any way because you still benefit from it as long as your reputation right. is still there. You will wish them well or even help them along occasionally because the incentives are aligned more long term. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I have hunches as well that the way that is likely in reality to to play out just because of psychological factors, that I think that it's likely to prove that tokens ownership earned through sweat equity is more psychologically valuable to people than tokens or value which they have just happened to purchase and which have not required a great deal of, of effort, I suppose, to acquire. Yeah, um, it's like airdrops don't really, right. people don't or, feel... Or yield farming, right? People acquire yeah. tokens, and then they just move on to the next thing. They're just like a swarm of locusts that move from one lush pasture to the next. It's like miners without a chain loyalty. <laughs> <laughs> right, indeed. Thank you for listening to the Collectively Intelligent Podcast. We'd greatly appreciate a review in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to stay in the loop even further, follow us on Twitter at Join Colony. Thanks again.